Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters. And we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm pleased to be able to present to you our founder's view of law and government. And that view was very simply put, in the Declaration of Independence, there is a creator God, and they said it was the God of the Bible. Secondly, our rights come from him and from him alone. And thirdly, the only purpose of human civil government is to protect and to secure those God-given rights. Well, I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney. I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution, and my two scholar and gentlemen that are with me this morning, Friday mornings as they are every Friday morning, Mike Jeremita, our warrior in the courtroom, defending the God-given right to keep and bear arms, and Phil Duffy, our Constitution instructor, and we are walking through a study together of the Articles of Confederation, something that most citizens never bothered to take time to look at, but it's important. It was the first government at the general, that is, at the federal level in our constitutional republic. So before our constitution was crafted in Philadelphia, this was the first form of government, and it's very instructive looking at it because it helps us understand many of the decisions made in the Constitutional Convention as they were seeking to remedy the defects and the problems with the Articles, improve on the Articles, but they didn't totally reject everything in the Articles of Confederation. In fact, in our study here together, we're finding that there was quite a bit that they adopted straight across and the meaning in the Articles of Confederation language is the same as the meaning in the Constitution. So the Articles of Confederation therefore become a very valuable resource in seeking to understand what our founders meant in the Constitution. Now, uh, we need to note that uh, Articles of Confederation had defects, had problems, had things that uh, even the anti-federalists who were opposed to uh, ratifying the Constitution recognized that, hmm, yeah, the Articles of Confederation needs amending, needs improvement, and maybe they were all referring to Article 9 that we're looking at uh, this morning, which, uh, you know, is a, is a problem in just how it's constructed and how it's patched together in a way. But, Phil, why don't you go ahead and bring us your view on Article 9 of the Articles of Confederation. Article 9 of the Articles of Confederation is quite a contrast with Article 8's brevity. It contains many of the provisions of the later Constitution of 1787, but often in greater detail. It is somewhat difficult to analyze because it covers so many subjects in a disorganized way. The paragraphs are long and seem to cover multiple subjects. The third paragraph, for example, opens with this statement. The United States and Congress assembled shall have the sole and exclusive right and power of regulating the alloy and value of coins struck by their own authority. That same paragraph contains a provision for appointing all officers of the land forces in the service of the United States, accepting regimental officers. It seems the Articles of Confederation might have appeared to be stronger had they been better organized. As we explore Article 9, we need to separate the organizational issues from the foundational idea differences. As we consider the idea differences, it is also necessary to separate the legitimate differences from the propaganda. The idea is that uh, foreign nations would not invest in the newly formed United States, and Shays' rebellion suggested a powerless federation. These seem to qualify as propaganda, whereas a serious student of government can question the wisdom 
of folding all functions into the legislative branch versus the separation of powers principle that is implemented in the Constitution of 1787. If one accepts the separation of powers principle as essential, then the organization of the Constitution of 1787 is clearly superior, and particularly its first three articles, which describe the powers of each branch. That is not the end of the story, however. The Constitution was sold to the states and the people as a governing document that could be that could uh, that would respond to a crisis in its uh, promoters contended as as its uh, promoters contended existed, including the threat from foreign nations invading the newly formed Confederation. The greatest military power on earth, Britain, had failed spectacularly in doing that, as evidenced by the Treaty of Paris of 1783. France had been weakened by her own attempt to establish her influence on the North American continent and further weakened herself in her attempt to support the United States in their war of independence against Great Britain. Spain was in serious decline after the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. The United States in 1787 was not in crisis. To the contrary, it had become the most defendable nation on earth and had a landmass to exploit to the West that was greater in size than the original 13 colonies that comprised the United States. Within its boundaries were resources that European nations needed, and they could no longer be seized by conquest. Opportunities abounded for unrestricted free trade. As we explore Article 9 of the Articles of Confederation, Let's acknowledge the legitimate comparative strengths of the Constitution of 1787, but keep these distinct from the weaknesses of the articles alleged by the promoters of strong national government. The first paragraph of Article 9 states, The United States and Congress assembled shall have the sole and exclusive right and power of determining on peace and war, except in the cases mentioned in the sixth article, of sending and receiving ambassadors, entering into treaties and alliances, providing, provided that no treaty of commerce shall be made, whereby the legislative power of the respective states shall be restrained from imposing such imposts and duties on foreigners as their own people are subjected to, or from prohibiting the exportation or importation of any species of goods or commodities whatsoever of establishing rules for deciding in all cases what captures on land or water shall be legal and in what manner prizes taken by land or naval forces in the service of the United States shall be divided or appropriated, of granting letters of mark and reprisal in times of peace, appointing courts for the trial of piracies and felonies committed on the high seas, and establishing courts for receiving and determining finally appeals in all cases of captures, provided that no member of Congress shall be appointed a judge of any of the said courts. At 187 words, this is no Ernest Hemingway sentence. Fortunately, it deals with a single subject, the powers granted to the Confederation government concerning relations with other nations in war and peace. Article 1, Section 10 of the Constitution removed the state's power to impose tariffs. On the other hand, 
this paragraph in Article 9 went into great detail about the appointment of courts to deal with, to deal with uh, piracies, felonies on the high seas, and captures, areas assigned to the federal judiciary under the Constitution. The second paragraph of Article 9, addressing disputes between states, reads as follows. The United States and Congress assembled shall also be the last resort on appeal in all disputes and differences now subsisting or that hereafter may arise between two or more states concerning boundary, jurisdiction, or any other cause whatever, which authority shall always be exercised in the manner following. Whenever the legislative or executive authority or lawful agent of any state in controversy with another shall present a petition to Congress stating the matter in question and praying for a hearing, notice thereof shall be given by order of Congress to the legislative or executive authority of the other state in controversy and a day assigned for the appearance of the parties by their lawful agents who shall then be directed to appoint by joint consent commissioners or judges to constitute a court for hearing and determining the matter in question. But if they cannot agree, Congress shall name three persons out of each of the United States, and from the list of such persons, such party shall alternately strike out one, the petitioner's beginning until the number shall be reduced to 13, and from that number, not less than seven, nor more than nine names, as Congress shall direct, shall in the presence of Congress be drawn out by lot, and the persons whose names shall be so drawn, or any five of them, shall be commissioners or judges, to hear and finally determine the controversy. So always as a major part of the judges, of the judges who shall hear the cause, shall agree in the determination, and if either party shall neglect to attend at the day appointed, Without, throw, uh, without showing reasons, which Congress shall judge sufficient, or being present shall refuse to strike, the Congress shall proceed to nominate three persons out of each state, and the Secretary of Congress shall strike in behalf of such party absent or refusing, and the judgment and sentence of the court to be appointed in the manner before uh, prescribed shall be final and conclusive, and if any of the parties shall refuse to submit to the authority of such court, or to appear or defend their claim or cause, the court shall nevertheless proceed to pronounce sentence or judgment, which shall in like manner be final and decisive, the judgment or sentence and other proceedings being in either case transmitted to Congress and lodged among the acts of Congress for the security of the parties concerned, provided that every commissioner before he sits in judgment shall take an oath to be administered by one of the judges of the Supreme or Superior Court of the state, where the cause shall be tried well and truly to hear and determine the matter in question, according to the best of his judgment, without favor, attend, uh, affection, or hope of reward, provided also that no state shall be deprived of territory for the benefit of the United States. All controversies concerning the private right of soil claimed under different grants of two or more states, whose jurisdiction as they may respect such lands, and the states which pass such grants are adjusted, the said grants are either of them 
being at the same time claimed to have originated antecedent to such settlement of jurisdiction shall on the petition of each party to the Congress of the United States be finally determined as near as may be in the same manner as is before prescribed for deciding disputes respecting territorial jurisdiction between different states. Wow. You've got to be kidding me. At 575 words in three sentences, or an average of 192 words per sentence, this description of the powers of the Confederation Congress is overwhelming, making it difficult to understand the fundamental ideas. By comparison, one has to admire the organization of the the Constitution with its three first articles describing the separate branches of government under the separation of powers principle and the list of 16 general powers concisely granted to Congress in Article 1, Section 8. By comparison, the second paragraph of Article 9 seems burdened by the need to describe judicial functions within the legislative branch of government and to do that in painful detail. As with the first paragraph, the third paragraph consists of a single sentence, this time only 178 words in length. The United States and Congress assembled shall have the sole and exclusive right and power of regulating the alloy and value of coins struck by uh, their own authority uh, or by that of the respective states, fixing the standard of weights and measures throughout the United States regulating the trade and managing all affairs with the Indians, not members of any uh, of the states, provided that the legislative right of any state within its own limits be not infringed or violated, establishing and regulating post office from one state to another through the United, throughout all the United States, and exacting such postage on the papers passing through the same as may be requisite to defray the expenses of the said office appointing all officers of the land forces in the service of the United States, accepting regimental officers, appointing all the officers of the naval forces, and commissioning of all officers, whatever, in the service of the United States, making rules for the government and regulation of the said land and naval forces, and directing their operations. This has to be some of the worst word composition in United States official documents. What does regulating the alloy and value of coins struck by their own authority or by that of the respective states have in common with appointing all officers of the the United States, excepting regimental officers? Remember that the authors of the Articles of Confederation managed to squeeze these two thoughts together in a single sentence. That criticism is not about grammatical purity. It is about misusing language such that vital ideas get lost or distorted. Consider the part of the sentence about the Congress having the power to appoint land officers with the exception of regimental commanders. That language indicated that land officers from battalion commander to platoon leader, were also to be appointed by Congress, which surely was not the intent. The fourth paragraph of Article 9 
seems to go out of its way to violate every rule of written language composition. The United States in Congress assembled shall have authority to appoint a committee to sit in the recess of Congress to be denominated a committee of the states and to consist of one delegate from each state and to appoint such other committees and civil officers as may be necessary for managing the general affairs of the United States under their direction, to appoint one of their number to preside, provided that no person be allowed to serve in the office of president more than one year and uh, in any term of three years, to ascertain the necessary sums of money to be raised for the service of the United States and to appropriate and apply the same for uh, defraying the public expenses, to borrow money or emit bills and uh, bills on the credit of the United States, transmitting every half year to the respective states an amount, uh, an account of the sums of money so borrowed or uh, emitted, to build and equip a navy, to agree upon the number of land forces and to make requisitions from each state for its quota in proportion to the number of white inhabitants in such state. Which requisition shall be binding? And thereupon, the legislature of each state shall appoint the regimental officers, raise the men, and clothe, arm, and equip them in a uh, soldier-like manner at the expense of the United States. And the officers and men so clothed, armed, and equipped shall march to the place appointed and within the time agreed on by the United States in Congress assembled. But if the United States in Congress assembled shall, on consideration of circumstances, judge proper that any state sh should not raise men or should raise a smaller number than its quota, and that any other state should raise a greater number of men than the quota thereof, such extra number shall be raised, officered, clothed, armed, and equipped in the same manner as the quota of such state, unless the legislature of each state shall judge that such extra number cannot be safely spared out of the, uh, the same, in which case they shall raise, officer, clothe, arm, and equip as many of such extra number as they judge can be safely spared. And the officers and men so clothed, armed, and equipped shall match to the, uh, shall march to the place appointed and with the time agreed on by the United States in Congress assembled. Now, couldn't that have been said a lot more simply than that? One paragraph consisting of a single sentence of 400 words that begins with a discussion of the executive function to be exercised within the Congress and ends with more painful detail about the state's responsibilities in providing men and material for the, uh, the militia. The fifth paragraph of Article 9 stated, the United States in Congress assembled shall never engage in a war, nor grant letters of mark and reprisal in time of peace, nor enter into any treaties or alliances, nor coin money, nor regulate the value thereof, nor ascertain the sums and expenses necessary for the defense and welfare of the United States or any of them, nor emit bills, nor borrow money on the credit of the United States, nor appropriate, appropriate money 
nor agree upon the number of vessels of war to be built or purchased, or the number of land or sea forces to be raised, nor appoint a commander in chief of the army or navy, unless nine states assent to the same, nor shall a question on any other point except for adjourning from day to day be determined unless by the votes of a majority of the United States in Congress assembled. Now, clearly, that could have been stated uh, a lot more briefly than that. Again, a single-sentence paragraph containing a refreshingly limited 148 words attempting to describe limits on going to war as well as the rule for adjourning the Congress. The sixth and final paragraph of Article 9 stated, The Congress of the United States shall have power to adjourn to any time within a year and to any place within the United States so that no period of adjournment be for a longer duration than the space of six months, and shall publish the journal of their proceedings monthly, except such parts thereof relating to treaties, alliances, or military operations, as in their judgment require secrecy, and the yeas and nays of the delegates of each state on any question shall be entered on the journal when it is desired by any delegate, and the delegates of the state, or any of them, at his or by their request, shall be furnished with a manuscript, uh, with a transcript of the said journal, except such parts as are above accepted to lay before the legislatures of the several states. The single-sentence paragraph rule again prevailed, but this time with a merciful 136-word limit. The Irish stew of ideas also remained, however, with everything from a German to a journal of congressional activities mentioned. One could easily conclude from analysis of the Anti-Federalist versus Federalist essays that much of the crisis described by the Federalists was contrived. If that was understood at this nation's founding, then why did the delegates decide to scrap the articles entirely and instead create a new constitution that would actually include much of the ideas of the Articles of Confederation. Perhaps one reason was that the delegates realized that Article 9 of the Articles of Confederation was such a mess that it would be necessary to write a constitution from the ground floor up. Well, thank you, Phil, particularly for reading all of the painful details. And you're right, this this article, in, in contrast with the rest of the Articles of Confederation, is, is kind of a mess, kind of tangled up and things are, are sort of just thrown together uh, that don't necessarily make a whole lot of sense, where when we look at our U.S. Constitution, things are laid out very clearly. Article 1, Legislative Article 2, Executive Article 3, Judiciary. Article 4 deals with the states and the various relations between the states and the federal government and the states one and one another, full faith and credit, that sort of thing. And then Article 5, of course, deals with the amendment process, how the U.S. Constitution can be amended. Article 6 deals with the supremacy as well as a few other general matters. And then Article 7, clearly with the how uh, the Constitution was to be ratified. So, yes, I agree with you. This this is kind of a mess, and perhaps they thought that rather than uh, revising this and going back and undoing the spaghetti uh, mess that was created here, it was easier just to start from scratch and, and create a whole whole new thing. But let me just deal with a couple of things that are, are to me at least, glaring weaknesses here uh, in, in Article 9, and particularly the whole issue of war. 
As you said, the very first paragraph of Article 9 says the United States in Congress assembled shall have the sole and exclusive right and power of determining on peace and war. And so uh, they were given enormous power in the hands of this one body. And by the way, we need to remember Congress was a unicameral legislature. It was only one body. You call it the House or you call it Congress, but there was no House and Senate that would be a counterbalance to one another. So if the House passed something, then we know it has to go on to the Senate. Senate also has to pass that piece of legislation, or in this case, talking about the decision of a declaration of war. Both bodies in, in our U.S. Constitution have to be involved in making that declaration of war, whereas here not only is uh, the decision to go to war completely in the hands of Congress, the, con uh, the, the decision to spend, how much money is going to be spent, how much uh, does each state, what's the requisition that's going to be sent to each state. So the power of deciding to go to war, mm -hmm. the power of funding the war, and the power of conducting the war appear all to be in the hands of the Congress. And you're right, they even uh, don't get very specific about, let's see, we're going to appoint these officers, but it's kind of left an open door. Do the states get to appoint any officers? And of course, they were talking about an actual army in the field as we're, we're studying this. We need to realize that uh, when the Articles of Confederation were uh, first put together in 1777, uh, the war was ongoing. You know, the war had been ongoing since 1775. So uh, April 19th, there, Lexington and Concord. So the war, this is two years into the war, and uh, for whatever reason, they uh, they were they were just operating on what was working perhaps at that moment rather than considering what would be an ideal situation. And uh, our founders for the ratification of our Constitution argued, and I think argued cogently, that it is unsafe to put the hands of those deciding to go to war, the hands of those deciding how much to spend upon that war, as well as the hands of those who are actually conducting the war, it is unwise to put that all in the hands of one body of people. In this case, the unicameral Congress of the Continental uh, Congress. So uh, and when we look at the war itself and, and look at how Washington struggled every single time uh, with requisitions for essentials, like not just food and clothing, that, that was a difficulty there, but uh, bullets and, and uh, gunpowder and cannon and on and on the list goes of things that were needed to safely conduct the war that were not available because Congress was unable to do it. And perhaps the tangled mess here we see in Article 9 is part of that, uh, although I think the very idea of the structure uh, that would, would make everything in, in the federal government dependent on this one body, a unicameral legislature that functions as Congress, and as we see here also functions as the executive branch, and to some extent, we've also seen details here in Article 9 that it functions as the judicial branch. That is, they got to set up courts, but these were very, it appears, very temporary courts. You know, So when a case was brought before Congress, Congress uh, basically would have to hear the case. You had to pray to Congress. And by the way, I'm going to ask Mike about that phrase, praying. I'm curious about if there's any history about where that, that came from and why use the word pray when you make a request uh, regarding a, a judicial action. But anyway... All is in the hands of this Congress. Yes, they do have to appoint uh, uh, judges and so forth. But again, it's in their hands to decide who is going to become the judges with each and every case that came before them. 
kind of a very awkward and cumbersome way in which to conduct uh, courts at, at the federal level. So it, again, when we compare this with our Constitution, I think the, the, the uh, three branches of the federal government are a far better system than, than what we have here in the Articles of Confederation. And by the way, the uh, you know we can credit our founders with all kinds of uh, wisdom on their part, and indeed they did have a great deal of wisdom. But that idea of three uh, branches of government actually is not original with them. Uh, they uh, uh, got it from several different sources, Montesquieu being one, but primarily Montesquieu also got it from the Bible, that's right, the Bible speaks to this in Isaiah 33 and verse 22, Isaiah 33, 22 uh, says, the Lord is our king, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our judge. So clearly the three branches of government in the Bible are all centered in one God. He alone is the lawgiver, he alone is the executive, he alone is the judge, and our founders rightly said, no human being should ever be elevated to the level where they become lawmaker, judge, and king or, or, or executive. And again, we, when we see great tyranny happening in uh, th throughout the history of the world, when we see those tyrannies, it's often that uh, a, one individual in a monarchy has grabbed all three functions of government, the legislative function, the executive function, and the judicial. So you can imagine uh, one day he passes a law that says he's going to take your property, and then you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, I demand a court case because I think you're stealing my property. You're not lawfully taking this property from me. I, I've got some protection here, don't I, for my God-given right to own property? And he responds, oh, no, you don't. I'm the judge and I judge that you have no right to that property. <laughs> so the very definition of tyranny would be to incorporate all three branches into one person in the form of a monarchy, the kind of divine right of king sense of things. But you could also be in a very dangerous situation if it was a group of very powerful people that also possessed all three powers, all three branches of government. So an oligarchy, you know, you've got these elite, rich, very powerful people, and they become both the executive and the legislative and the judicial all in one group. Again, that group is probably going to be as tyrannical. Maybe maybe you might be spared a little bit, but I, I appreciate the argument of Montesquieu that uh, a monarch has to be uh, sensitive to the people over whom he rules, because if he's too tyrannical, eventually an uprising will uh, will come and, and throw him off the throne, and, and uh, he will lose his kingdom if he's not uh, somewhat careful with how he handles uh, the, the people under his, under his uh, rulership there in his kingdom. Whereas an oligarchy, you know, who are you going to go after? You know, you have a group of people today, I think, argue correctly that there is a secret oligarchy behind the powers in Washington, D.C., and JFK referred to this secret oligarchy, and uh, Woodrow Wilson referred to it. There's a number of presidents who've kind of said that, you know, they thought when they became president that, you know, they're going to have a lot more leeway, and they discovered, no, 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 there's this secretive group of people that kind of control things in both the legislative, the executive, as well as the judiciary. And that's an oligarchy. And uh, we ought to ferret out, if we had a just constitutional government, they would seek to ferret out this oligarchy that is in control of our government. And I can point in one direction where that oligarchy we know exists. There may be other elements of it, but the Federal Reserve because they're in complete control of the economy. In fact, uh, uh, we don't even know exactly who the owners, their private owners, 
that get to print our money and loan that money to us at interest that costs them nothing to create that money. They just create it out of thin air, but they get to loan it to us. We have to pay them interest on something that costs them nothing. That's theft. Uh, that's a chicanery of the worst sort. But these people control what happens in our government. And uh, I believe Nathan Rothschild, one of the uh, founders of this system of control that began as control over the the uh, uh, nation of England through the Bank of England and so forth, loaning money to the to the crown. But he said, I don't care who makes the laws as long as I get to control the money. And there, there it is. Follow the money, that old adage. And when you follow the money back, you see that there is an oligarchy that is behind the control of Washington, D.C., uh, that uh, very few people survive if they stand up against it. And those are the kind of people that we should be taking out of, uh, out of power and out of control over our government. But uh, when uh, even the three branches, which are a far better design, I would argue far better design than the Articles of Confederation is those three branches, because you do have the option to separate the functions of the judiciary in judging cases and controversies that come before it, separate that from the uh, legislative branch that is actually crafting specific pieces of legislation. They don't get to enforce it. The enforcement of those legislative uh, decisions are made by the executive branch. So separating into three different branches is wise, but it appears to me that our, our beautiful system of constitutional republic has been captured, captured by a secret elite through the money system that began in 1913 when the Federal Reserve was created. And by the way, from what I understand, the Federal Reserve Act that brought the Federal Reserve into existence has a proviso in it whereby it could be undone. And that is we, the people, could throw off these foreign banksters and say, you are no longer in control of the interest rate. You are no longer in control of printing the money. You are no longer in control of the economy of these United States. We need to be set free from your oligarchy and uh, from your tyranny. Well, Mike, uh, just uh, some of the thoughts you might have on this, but also that question, if, if you know, where the idea of praying to the courts came from, because I understand that language is used uh, quite often. You know, you pray to the court for this or for that or for the other thing. And I, as a pastor, thought we only prayed to God. <laughs> it's known as a, a prayer for relief. You know, that's one of those things people often ask me what uh, little things in the law mean. <laughs> and they're quite insignificant in the grand scheme of things when you, you think about the term prayer for relief. Uh, nobody usually goes beyond that. It's sort of like when people ask me what it means to be an Esquire and uh, the answer is essentially nothing. They don't send you something in the mail. Uh, you don't get some kind of certificate. Claiming you don't have one of those Esquire. secret rings or something on your finger. <laughs> no secret <laughs> rings, no secret meetings or anything. Uh, probably, frankly, won't get you to the front of the line at a restaurant or anything. It's not really not anything, any uh, major distinction. Kind of like Commonwealth is another thing that people often ask me about, particularly in Pennsylvania. I had a client uh, just within this last week saying, I can't wait to get out of Pennsylvania because it's a Commonwealth. <laughs> you know what that means, right? You know what I'm talking about. And uh, really, if I were being honest with the client, I'd say, uh, I actually have no idea what you're talking about. You could offer me a million dollars to try to explain what you're talking about, and I would lose that million dollars <laughs> because it's really uh, something that's in name only. Pennsylvania in particular, uh, you, you see the term Commonwealth and state used interchangeably, even in our constitutional documents. Um, you know, And as I understand it, you get the three original Commonwealths with Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, 
um, and uh, Virginia. And then when Kentucky County split off, they became a commonwealth as well. Um, but as I understand it, it was really uh, mostly a, a signal of defiance towards the crown more than anything else. It's not like the, the laws of the political systems are, are arranged any differently. Uh, prayer, I would, I would throw into that category. The best <laughs> I could have. <laughs> so not best, to take anything significant about it's, the it's praying just, to the court. Ju- just a word. Nobody pays any mention and uh, pays any attention to it, really. Uh, and it's really used interchangeably with a request. And I found that if you look on Webster's Dictionary, that's pretty much how it's defined as... Um, a, a solemn request or a humble request, uh, specifically to make a request in a humble manner when you're using it in the verb context. So I think it's nothing more than a, a different usage of the word, not specifically having to do with, you know, God Almighty or anything like that. Uh, and you hear the, the term pray used not necessarily today, but, you know, Shakespeare times and everything like that in a little bit of a different manner in certain contexts. So I think that's where it comes from. Uh, I think it's just another a way of saying it. Now, do I like saying it that way in the court context? No, especially because <laughs> when you're talking about praying these days, nobody uses it as a request, uh, as the term request, especially this day and age. I mean, could you imagine going to the deli counter and praying for Turkey or something like that? <laughs> uh, but it's it, the legal, the legal field is filled with all these traditions that nobody really knows the origin and they just continue on because we've always done it that way. And I like to, in my practice, sort of say, well, why do we do it that way? And why do we have to do it that way? You know, we're not doing that anymore. I don't care that you've always done it that way. And in this, today's topic in particular, uh, it just makes me think about something that we run across all the time. And this is going to go back to to Phil's comments with the way this stuff was written. Oh, my goodness. You see legislation today and you think that it's poorly written. Could you imagine having to read through this stuff and figure out what is going on? It is just an absolute nightmare. Makes you want to pull your hair out of your head. You can hardly stay awake while you're reading through the entire thing, let alone figure out what's going on. And that's been a, a major problem throughout, throughout the history of jurisprudence. Uh, poorly, uh, Poor writing. And really, there's this trend this day and age, or at least there's been this push. I wouldn't call it a trend because the legislatures haven't necessarily caught on. Uh, there's a book by a guy, Brian Garner, called Legal Writing in Plain English, and that's a source of authority on how to write things so everybody understands it. And isn't that supposed to be the point, is that we're writing things and, and uh, writing laws and and even interpreting laws in such a way that people can understand this stuff. And I'm not just saying laypersons even, even people who are involved in cases like judges and litigators. And when you have 10 different people who all come up with 10 different meanings, that means you did a poor job at writing that thing. That's what that means. An example I think of is very recently a friend of mine tried a case in Philadelphia where uh, Philadelphia had enacted these ordinances uh, with respect to certain homemade firearms and 3D printing, things of that nature. And in Pennsylvania, there's state preemption, just so everybody understands what that means. Uh, preemption is when one government, and at the state level, it would be the, 
the General Assembly, the state legislature, saying that no local government can regulate something, that it's all within the hands of the state legislature. And this could be important for a number of reasons. With firearms, it's important because you got over 2,000 local governments, and it would be absolutely impossible to follow the law if all 2,000-plus local governments had their own set of gun laws. And could you imagine if there were a different set of gun laws every time you went into a different township or county? It's kind of like saying, imagine if, uh, you know, if you go over to the next township, they have a law that you have to actually go on red and stop on green. Uh, that would be impossible for everybody to know all the different laws of all the different local jurisdictions. So under Section 6120, local governments are prohibited from regulating the ownership, possession, transportation, or transfer of firearms. And the court in Philadelphia sort of did these gymnastics to come to the conclusion that, A, the legislature ha has not enacted field, pre field preemption in terms of firearms, which the, the Court of Appeals has said that they have in Pennsylvania. <laughs> uh, but And B, uh, that the, the conduct that they were looking to regulate didn't fall within what is preempted in Pennsylvania. Now, I do note that the language says ownership, possession, transportation, or transfer of firearms. And it's important for people to understand the history about this because this law has changed over the years because when they first wrote the law, it wasn't quite as expansive in terms of the language that they used. And so what local governments have always done and what they did from the very start was they said, well, you said we can't regulate this. You didn't say we couldn't regulate this, though. And they've tried to come up with all these loopholes as to what they can regulate. And the legislature has always gone back to the drawing board and said, no, 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 dummy. We mean stop trying to regulate firearms. And they add more things that they're not supposed to regulate. But then the local governments go back and say, aha, you didn't say we couldn't regulate this. Like, no, we mean it. Stop regulating firearms. And they add to it again. Um, so... It's pretty clear that the state legislature has intended to, to preempt the field. But the problem is that could all be solved in a, a very, very, very uh, simple way of legislating. You just say, we preempt the field of firearms in <laughs> instead of trying to list each and everything and, and get all uh, you know, cute with it. So this is a problem that we have over and over and over again in the legal field where everybody sort of, uh, you know, writes their way into a problem. It's all the time. So that's what I see with this sort of thing. And, you know, Phil's comments are spot on. Mm -hmm. Amen. And I'm, I'm curious, then, does uh, legislative intent uh, often get debated in court? You know, OK, here's what they said on paper. But what did they intend? What did they, you know, does that ever get debated uh, in, in the court? Absolutely. And there was a case that I had on preemption in the city of Harrisburg um, early on in my career where I ended up going up into the Senate library and the guy said nobody had looked at these books, I don't think, ever. And he had to take me up this spiral staircase into this really small room up there that had these books from floor to ceiling. And when I opened up one of the books from the early 1900s that I needed in order to prove my case – I promise dust came out of the book and I felt like <laughs> if I turned the page, it was going to break in half. <laughs> I did ultimately end up finding what I needed, but absolutely this comes into play all the time.
And that, that would be obtained, I guess, by looking at the debates that would have been recorded at that time when the piece sure. of legislation was being passed? Sure. And, of course, the older they are, the more difficult they are to find. Um, but absolutely, that, that'll come into the discussion. And I find that that's, that's the hard thing, I guess, the older uh, uh, piece of legislation is to say, what was the mindset of these people? And again, this calls back what I attend with our our U.S. Constitution. We have to have the worldview of our founders to understand what, or at least we need to understand the worldview of our founders in order to understand what they meant by what they said. And I think that what we often have is the courts twisting the words of our founders and twisting the Constitution and actually redefining words wholesale and so forth, but they're they're not at all concerned about the original intent of those who, who wrote those words. And some of the blame has to be placed on the people who are writing things when they don't make their intent clear and, and solid, because when you leave that sort of wiggle room, you know, you got to anticipate these sort of issues. When I have clients who ask me to review model legislation, uh, whether it's a, a gun rights organization or something of that nature, uh, then you know I try to think of it from all angles. Well, if this is the language we settle on, what can the other side do to try to uh, get away with something? How can they try to argue that uh, it was intended to mean something that it doesn't? So you have to really analyze things and, and see things from the other side and if you don't do that, you're setting yourself up for failure. But our, our modern problem is we have legislation being passed that was never even read by the people passing it. Well, isn't it in Pelosi the famous one that said, ha, we got to pass this Obamacare bill, whatever, thousands and thousands of pages. Nobody's read it. But we cannot know what's in it until we have passed it. It's like, oh, my, no wonder we're in a mess. How can you determine what it meant when the legislators never even knew what was in the legislation because they didn't write it? They pulled it off. Somebody else, somebody they hired or whatever wrote it, and they don't even understand what it means themselves. How can you know litigation later on the meaning Oh, it's just you go down a, a destructive rabbit hole that, that, that we see happening today when legislators really are not willing to do the job that we, the people, hired them to do. Yeah, and fortunately, that was just a tiny peek at the ugly truth of how the sausage is made, Pastor Whitney. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor Whitney, you, uh, you made a mention of uh, the Federal Reserve and the fact that it creates money out of thin air. Uh, paper money, fiat money, whatever we want to call it. And uh, uh, today uh, we hear that there is something that's formalized called modern monetary theory, which basically says that the, the government can create um, as much money as it wants because it has the taxing power after all. Um, and that there, there are no effective limits other than the fact that once all the, the resources are employed and you add more money, then, yeah, you're going to have inflation. Well, of course, that's not really the case. I mean, uh, we have today what, is, what passes as legis uh, inflation. Uh, it's really a general price increase. But, uh, you know, we have a huge number of people who are unemployed and they would prefer to be employed. So we have uh, we have these these uh, unemployed resources, and yet we have inflation. That that violates the 
the so-called MMT, modern monetary theory. Um, so, you know, I, I was curious about this. And I started to write an article about it, find out how modern this idea was. And I finally traced it back to the Song Dynasty in China. That's not so modern. <laughs> That's not so modern. This was the, the 11th and 12th century. And uh, basically, um, they had technology going their way. Um, they had all these ideograms, uh, uh, letters, if you will, that had separation between them. And they could create what is called block print. And so uh, <clears throat> they, they turned that onto the, uh, the ability to create paper money. And at first, it, it really got things moving. But as with all paper money, you know, it, it runs its course. And then you get the, the price increases, you get the dislocations, you get all the bad stuff later. And most people don't make the, the connection between the two. But nonetheless, if you look at it analytically, you look at it historically, it's pretty clear. Now, how bad was it for the Song Dynasty? Well, it came in two waves. They tried it not once, but twice. Once um, in the, uh, the 11th century, and they printed so much money, they had inflation, which led to corruption, you know, and on and on and on, destruction of the incentive to produce. Uh, the, all the, the negative stuff finally crashed in on them, as did the Jin dynasty from the north and took over northern China. So the Song dynasty lost a part of China as a result of uh, printing this paper money. Well, they went through several iterations of successors and so forth. Um, and finally, 90 years later, they have another group come back that's really in sympathy with the Federal Reserve kind of idea of printing paper money. And so what do they do? They do the same thing again. And this time, the Mongols take advantage of it. And the Mongols, by the way, were vastly inferior in terms of numbers and armaments and all the rest of that. And the Mongols beat them and took southern China. Hmm. So, I mean, if you look at this, uh, you know, really what we're talking about is not modern monetary theory, but ancient monetary theory. Somebody didn't get the word. Somebody didn't get the memo. It doesn't work. As that old adage goes, if you don't learn from history, then you're doomed to repeat it. <laughs> it seems to be what uh, we're experiencing now. And uh, I don't know whether whether anybody has studied how long those uh, fiat currencies tend to uh, exist before they implode. They reach a point where the paper becomes worthless. And, and by the way, which is part of the reason why uh, the uh, Federalists were arguing we need a new constitution because under the Articles of Confederation, printing paper money was permitted. And even states could print paper money, and they all printed and printed and printed, and ultimately the Continental, which was the the currency used by the Continental Congress, the Continental became worthless as a Continental, uh, a reference that uh, still traces back more than 200 years, and it became less worth less than one penny on the dollar. Uh, and uh, that was part of the disaster, the economic disaster that, that happened at that time. 
because of fiat currency. So I, I wonder how many years we've been a hundred. Well, we're, we're a little over a hundred years right now in the paper d- currency disaster we're currently under in the Federal Reserve. But uh, I don't know if there's an average of, you know, does it last a century on average or, or more than that? Any idea, Phil? Yeah, uh, it's all over the lot. Now, the next experiment came with the, uh, the so-called Mississippi scheme with John Law, who is this uh, uh, charismatic Scot who becomes, believe it or not, the uh, controller general of France. And he, he came up with the same idea. The problem, he said, is that we don't have enough uh, money in circulation. And so he went through the same thing like the Chinese. And this time, it lasted for only a year. Hmm. <laughs> you see. Whoa, you know, we're going for the, the Chinese who, uh, you know, it probably took a decade for the, the Chinese uh, experiment to implode. But uh, now it's down to a year. But then the next one that we, we hear about is the Weimar uh, inflation. And that really starts, uh, you could say in 1914, they started uh, by printing paper money. And it got really serious after World War One. Now, the interesting thing about that is that uh, there was very little property destruction in Weimar Germany. And uh, so, uh, but how was all of the, the money being spent? Why were, why were they so badly out of control? Uh, and the reason is there were all these social programs. The socialists had taken control after the, the old guard had been eliminated and the, uh, the Kaiser had, had left the country. Uh, and now they had all of these socialist programs. I mean, everybody was a recipient of some kind of uh, benefit and so forth. And, of course, they couldn't pay for it. And so they just started printing more money. Well, that actually, I think, took until 1923. So if you look at 1914 to 1923, that's a nine-year um, expansion, uh, elapsed time. Um, now you look at, at ours, and it very definitely goes back, the original source goes back to the, uh, the establishment of the Federal Reserve itself, but there were multiple steps along the way. You had the Bretton Woods uh, Conference, uh, you've got uh, you've got Nixon in 1971, I believe it is, uh, uh, repudiating the uh, redemption of gold, um, you know, you go through multiple steps. And so, uh, really, uh, there's no way of comparing. Mm-hmm. So, But the problem Nixon, is we don't know. Nixon we don't know when that, it's going to hit. Nixon did that 51 years ago then. Yeah. So, if we, you know, measure the uh, true kind of fiat currency where our dollar was no longer backed by any gold or silver whatsoever, uh, that was Nixon 51 years ago, right? Yes, but and here's the the but, <laughs> you know, if you if you look at um, the the increase in the paper money and the now it's no longer paper money that that is important but bank deposits, um, if you look at that, there are vast increases at certain points in time, and I think uh, certainly in 2008, in the uh, financial crisis that occurred, rather than letting the market clean up that mess, we intervened with programs like TARP, a troubled asset relief program. <laughs> you know, and whose, troubled, whose assets were troubled? 
They were special interests. You know, that's the way that worked. And so we've had this period of maybe a decade uh, where <clears throat> all this money has been pumped into the system. And here we are at a point right now where the federal government really has no place to run and hide. It can't print more money. I mean, it, it has, I think, tripled the, uh, um, uh, the federal debt. You know, it's increasing so rapidly. Now we're faced with increased interest rates and that kind of thing to kind of control the, the uh, price increases that are occurring as a result of this. So the point about all of this is that you never can, can tell when you begin an inflationary cycle when and how, how disastrously it will end. So we're not uh, sure yeah, where, where we're at in that process, whether we're ready to hit the hyperinflation uh, button. What is it in Zimbabwe? I think they were printing bills on one side that were a billion Zimbabwe dollars or something ridiculous like sure. that. But you could buy nothing with it. It was worth absolutely, it. Absolutely. Absolutely. a billion. <laughs> and and uh, this kind of thing happened in Hungary as well as in Germany. And people ultimately were using the, the uh, paper notes to uh, wallpaper with <laughs> it had more value as wallpaper than it did as currency. <laughs> but you, you don't, you really don't know when you have a hyperinflation until it hits. I mean, there's no way it can be controlled. Once you go down that path, it's going to happen at some point. You, you, you go past an inflection point and beyond that, you're, you're totally out of control. And it, it affects different ways um, for every, every nation. Uh, but the one thing you do know is the effects are disastrous. Right. And that's the, the sad thing. Our Constitution, unlike the Articles of Confederation, our U.S. Constitution stated very clearly that the only legitimate money that was allowed was gold or silver. And I guess you imply you could imply by that, well, you could get a certificate saying you've got X number of gold uh, coins or ounces behind this certificate or silver and that sort of thing. So there were silver certificate, gold certificates, like you say, up until 1971. But once we broke that standard, once we left the constitutional standard of gold and silver as the only form of money, then we're in a, a free fall. And again, the free fall was maybe blunted a little bit for a, a couple of decades while the petrodollar agreement was in that everybody in the world needed to get dollars in order to buy oil, well, that petrodollar is now broken, and there's plenty of countries uh, exchanging oil for a basket of currencies that do not include the U.S. dollar at all. So we're now in new territory, and uh, this may be very dicey. But it, it points out to us, again, the wisdom of our founders uh, in crafting the Constitution they recognized the weakness in the Articles of Confederation was fiat currency, money created out of thin air, not backed by anything of any real value. And that's what they corrected in our Constitution. But lo and behold, because we the people have not uh, known our Constitution, have not maintained our Constitution, have not forced those in power to abide by the terms of this contract between we the people and this government we have created, because we have not done that, the government has gone off the rails in printing uh, printing spree that is destroying the wealth 
of actual Americans today. And, and like you say, we don't know how bad it can look. Weimar Germany was one example, but uh, Argentina, another example with 1,000% inflation. But all of these things lead us back to the conclusion that we need to know our Constitution. We need to study it diligently, which is why we exist here. We the people, the Constitution matters. We invite you to join us again next uh, Friday morning at 8 a.m. You mean to tell me you guys don't use cash as wallpaper? Not yet. <laughs> <laughs>